Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Are there too many bowls? College football season, NFL getting down to the short strokes, NBA, their Christmas bonanza. We're a couple of months away from the Winter Olympics. Hard to believe. A lot of issues this week. We are graced again with our global editor, Dan Colarusso. Thank you for being back after India. Did you enjoy it? Uh, it was a, I was in India. I was in Bangalore for a week. It was a fantastic experience. I was away um, when the Hot Stove League started, so I, I um, had to catch up to all the good baseball chatter. But outside of that, it was a good trip. Uh, I, I ate well. I slept well. I, it was a beautiful place. And, but now I'm back, and I'm ready. Do you enjoy the 20-something cricket now? Uh, they tried to get me into cricket while I was there. Uh, it didn't work. It failed. Maybe next time. I'm going back next year, so um, maybe next time. You're inherently xenophobic and you don't like soccer, so no, I'm sure I, terrific, I'm sure cricket doesn't work for you. It, it's I don't I am not xenophobic. I am uh, uh, committed to the sports in which I was raised. <laughs> That's the same thing. That we just said the same thing. By the way, and by the way, you're also zero for one because. The Hot Stove League, you were wrong. Ohutani, uh, the five-tool, amazing... Six-tool. He pitches, Jap- too. Japanese player, going to, he's going to the Angels. What happened? You predicted the Rangers. I predicted the Rangers. Uh, you know, I think the Angels is a nice move, too. I, had I thought more... No, I can't lie and say I would have considered the Angels. I thought the Rangers were the team. The Angels are a great market for him as well. I think they have all the benefits uh, of the Rangers, plus a bigger potential splash on the backside of his contract um, and teaming up with Mike Trout around a team that's a little bit more established, I think puts him in a, puts him in a good spot. Um, but he's the story, right? And then he was the story. And then Derek Jeter came in and uh, traded Giancarlo Stan to the Yankees um, in, the act of, in the ultimate act of the evil empire um, and took all the, the heat away from Otani. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, here is a, Here's a guy buying the Miami franchise, dumping payroll, and trading the player back to his former team. I don't know about that. We'll just, uh, I, I, what's your take? How, well, no, what's your take? You're the Florida guy. I mean, yeah. were, there tears, my, 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 were, were there tears filling Biscayne Bay? Uh, Jeter needed a bodyguard, let's put it that way. I actually <laughs> saw him at the Dolphin game on Monday night. People were too excited because the Dolphins actually beat the Patriots. Right, right, right. But he, he, he came and went quietly. Put that way. Doesn't happen much, that, yeah. That's what happens when you're an owner with unpopular decisions. So let's talk college football for a minute. You know, it's upon us. This is the bowl season. We now have 40 bowls. Strap it on, get ready. All of these bowls, including ones nobody cares about except the alumni, and that's all that matters because ESPN has all but four of them, and of course, everybody wants them televised. What is your take? Are you taking the populist opinion that there are too many of these bowls? Look, I think. The NCAA has enough money to go around. So if we're going to say that this type of college sports is what we accept as a society, then we should have more bowl games to make sure that everyone gets a slice of that pie. There's a lot of money to be made. It shouldn't be centered among the top 12 schools. Um, I don't mind smaller bowls. I'm, I'm not a big 
uh, a big school college football fan. I kind of enjoy the smaller games and the, the lesser known teams. Uh, so I think I'm not actually not in favor of them, but I do wonder what the economic tip, tipping point is. Like how much economic development do they have to bring to a location? What's it worth to the sponsors? When does this proliferation kind of snap back on itself? What, what, what's your thought on that? My, my thought is that there's enough to go around because the you don't need more than 20,000 people for the network to be happy because there are 20,000 people who are alums of the schools, and you don't need a whole lot of people watching because the ones that watch are the ones that buy product because, again, they're well-heeled and they are alums of the schools. I will do a personal report for you next week from Tropicana Field in St. Saint, in Saint Petersburg, the first annual Gasparilla St. Petersburg Bad Boy Mowers sponsored game between Florida Atlantic and Temple. I can't wait. I'm breathless with that, but I will give you an on field report for that. What do you think of that? Get, get me a hat. Um, and the, the, weren't you at like the beef jerky bowl last year by yourself in the stands, if I remember? Yeah, I was the only one there. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to extend that over to St. <laughs> Petersburg next week. And I will get you a bad boy mower's hat because I think you would look good in that. And it is very apropos. We mow a lot of asphalt in Brooklyn, so it's important. Yeah, I understand that. There are a lot of reasons for that. All right. So college football, obviously a big deal. That we'll talk about next week as well. Let's go to Korea. I know we're not going to go only metaphorically, but you know, 55% of the total allocated amount of tickets. It was 41%. They're moving in the right direction. But, you know, you make a good point, and it has nothing to do with ticket sales. What is it? Well, the, the point I wanted to, to, what I wanted to chat about with you a little bit, and we've talked about the right, and we, we've talked about the Olympics on several shows over, you know, different bidding wars, cities jumping in. Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? I'm wondering is if in all this, has the Olympics ceased to be relevant, or is it on the... The, the road to irrelevance, considering we've had dismal ticket sales, we've had disorganized games, uh, the, the rights are so expensive now that, you know, that networks are sending fewer people to cover them. The whole landscape seems to have changed. And now we read this week in the Wall Street Journal that the IOC is under investigation um, for possible bribes that went into the, the games in Brazil, the 2016 games. Um, that, to me, makes me step back a little bit and say, you know, what's the inherent value of the Olympics in this world that is changing very dramatically? Um, is it just a venue for China? Is it, you know, a few years ago we thought Asia was going to rescue the Olympics because it had all the financial growth and it had the population growth and it was the place. But that doesn't seem like that's going to be the, the cure-all for this, right? I mean, what can the Olympics do to turn it around? Are we, is the Olympic movement resting on Paris and Los Angeles? Well, yes, that's a very good way to put it because my comment was going to be you got to get through China for the Winter Olympics and then you got to get through Tokyo for the summer. It would have been unfathomable to think about Korea, uh, then Tokyo, then China for three Olympics back to back to back. And by the way, the guys at NBC can't be too happy that it's all in an entirely different time zone. So the answer is coming back to Paris and then ultimately coming back to L.A. in the 2020s probably saves the Olympic movement from being relegated to a status that does, has very few zeros attached to it. And really good point, by the way, about investigations, because if the IOC itself is subject to scrutiny, then the sky's the limit as to what happens with it. It's a very unpopular campaign promise. Do you remember Marty Walsh, who just got reelected as mayor of Boston, promised to look at it and then decided to step away from the Olympics after a very welcome bid. That became L.A.'s bid. So more and more local 
American politicians are stepping away from it also. Right. I mean, the, the security threat, I mean, in this day and age, let's step back and look at it. There's a security threat. There's infrastructure spending. Uh, there, there's all these landmines, um, not to punish a metaphor, not to torture a metaphor, but there's all these landmines in it that, that make it less appealing. Plus, if you're going to make the investment, you need to get it back. It, it's just, I think, it, I think it's a little bit messy. The other thing I just wanted to note, um, the... The Eastern District attorneys, uh, uh, the federal attorney in the Eastern District of New York, are the same attorneys that brought the FIFA case very effectively. Um, that's, a, that's gone to trial now. They're looking into the OSC. They understand the landscape of global sports. They understand the money trail. They have a leg up in this because they've, they've been through the FIFA pipeline. Uh, it's a, it, if I were the IOC, I wouldn't be enthralled with what's going on around the Brazil. That is an incredibly important point, and let's note for all of our audience the role reversal that Dan Calaruso is now playing legal consultant for us. Congratulations. <laughs> you only went to Harvard Law. I, I, I read the paper. Come on. <laughs> you, just play it, you just play it on TV. Right. Now, actually, but, but that's a very, very good point. And let's stay, by the way, after that compliment, with an international theme. Sure. Mexico City, close to getting an NBA G League franchise. They may want to put a team south of the border as soon as next season. The Mexican market, really important. Adam Silver down there for those pre-season, those regular season games. He notes that that might not be the only candidate down there with Monterrey and a couple of other cities if a move south is confirmed. So it is clear that the NBA is trying to expand its roots to Mexico and doing it fairly successfully. But there is another story about the G League and how important that is to the NBA as well. What's that story? Yeah, I think, I think it just broke today, or if not, maybe last night, but that... Amazon um, owns this network called Twitch, which I think originally was a video game network. Um, And they bought the rights to stream these G League games. And the G League games are interesting because, again, they're cities like Reno and Canton and now Mexico City. Uh, The NBA is going to use this not just as a lab for players to develop, but a lab to test out audience formats, interactive features, a whole new way of bringing live sports to that younger web-enabled audience. And if you look at the NBA, I think they're, they're, they're further ahead than the NFL might be on this. They're certainly further ahead than Major League Baseball is um, on expanding the audience. A combination of international, as you say, and the streaming situation on the other side. It's a very nice testing ground for the NBA, and I can't imagine that in two years, five years, you're going to see a lot of some of the features they've developed for the G League streaming click into what's going on on actual broadcast or whatever web broadcasting they do around the actual NBA games. And by the way, a major issue for companies like Keymotion, we've had his, their founder on with us before, uh, and there are four or five other companies do the same thing. How do you guarantee an efficient telecast of remote broadcast of games? Title IX causes you to make sure you have all the women's sports. So volleyball, um, uh, the, the, the soccer games, there is technology now that will allow you, if you want to, to broadcast, televise all of these G League games for a fraction of the cost as it used to be, which will also help this, won't it? Right, and you could also pinpoint your audience. I mean, it's a lot easier to find your audience online uh, through data mining than you can on, by, by simply putting up a channel on, on linear television, right? So the ability to, to, exp- to find and exploit, um, in the best possible way, uh, a niche audience is really economically viable in the streaming environment where it might not be on, on other environments for bigger sports at a bigger price tag. And everybody's looking at how to monetize and, and trying to emulate the, 
the American model for rights fees, which, which kind of leads us to our, our, our really interesting guest for the week. His name is Graham Brown. He is the head of, let's call it, the Canadian NCAA. He's the CEO of U Sports. But as we get into the bowl season, the Heisman here, congratulations to Baker Mayfield, but the college football playoff, there are significant parallels to our, with our neighbor from the north, they do have college football. It is a feeder system into the CFL. They have all of the rules for pay-per-play and eligibility, but a few less zeros attached to it, and it is an incredibly interesting perspective as we get into the American Bowl season. We'll cover a lot of that next week to have the Canadian perspective, CEO of U Sports, Graham Brown. You know about the NCAA and you know about Power 5 and pay-for-play and, and all of the teams and the BCS rankings and all of that, but I've got better story for you because we talk about how governance is difficult at the NCAA level. Well, this isn't the NCAA, but it is national governance. It's Graham Brown, who is the president of U Sports and basically governs all of college sports in Canada. Is that correct? Yep, all 56 universities, so not quite as big as our colleagues south of the border. Nobody says it's as big. Somebody says it's maybe more efficient, so thank you for being here. Thank you, no problem. Appreciate it. So give us a little bit of history about U Sports and how this whole organization came to be. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's well over 100 years old. I mean, yeah. uh, not unlike our colleagues south of the border, over a number of years it's taken on various uh, uh, structural and names, so a uh, number of years ago it was CIAU, Canadian Inter-University Athletic Union, then it went to CIS, Canadian Inter-University Sport, and now it's U-Sports. Uh, U-Sports is really, uh, I've been on, on uh, in the President and CEO role for two years, was really um, down to translation and, and in Canada we're bilingual, so CIAUU was not necessarily uh, bilingual, CIS was SIC, so if you put them together it was CSIC. You can imagine how that works well in a done. country uh, yeah, from right, east yeah, to west. Yeah, right. uh, so now U Sport is fully bilingual, U Sport yeah. and U Sport. So it's easier to build a brand in, in one uh, language. Staff, budget, just give us kind of an elevator speech about how you operate. Yeah, we have, uh, we have about 18 full-time staff at, at our national office. Our budget is less than $10 million, so it's not significant. Um, you know, our, I think uh, part of my vision would be to grow university sports. So we've, we've for, for many years and, and for a lot of years, I suppose, have, have been you know, just delivering sport, uh, not trying to market it, certainly haven't commercialized it in any way. That's not good, bad, or indifferent, but we have scholarships now. Yeah. That's new in the last uh, seven years. For all sports? For, uh, it's depending upon the school, but, yeah. but to some degree, uh, there are scholarships for sports that are part of the youth sport. So we have 23 national championships. Uh, but there are 42 sports competed for. So if you're not a national championship sport or a youth sport, sport, then, uh, then this, there's generally not scholarships for it. So uh, how do you grow the game? I mean, uh, how do you grow your organization? You know, the NCAA, television contracts, Supreme Court restructured, um, contracts still drive it, but that's more at the conference level yep. than it is at the, at the national structure level. So how do you grow it nationally? Well, we grow it nationally just by being a little bit more aggressive in how we're doing it. And, and when I say that is a lot of our schools are very sophisticated. I mean, we've got incredible facilities on campus. Yeah. We, we have full-time coaching staff. We have very bright athletic directors. We have very bright uh, athletics department staff but they haven't actually gotten together and collaborated. So we have four conferences and they all worked very independently, independent rules and regulations. And in the last 
five years, there's been a real impetus to bring all of them together, to collaborate more, to work together. And part of uh, my coming on board was the result of a governance change. So uh, no longer do 56 athletic directors govern the association, there's eight. And, and one outside. So that's an executive committee? That's, a, that's essentially an executive board, board. committee, that's right. And that's a, that was a huge change because now on that executive committee fit, sit five presidents. So before uh, you only had the athletic directors, now you've got presidents, uh, a bit more influence, but also uh, in the last two years there's been over one billion dollars of uh, facility builds on our campuses. So, you know, that's a little more serious to the president now suggesting if we're going to have these these new gyms and football fields and stadiums we, we've got to have some people in there a lot more zeros and by the way that's why they hired a guy of substance obviously it's very sure. important right yeah. so so um, besides the obvious differences in scale and zeros uh, what are the what are the biggest similarities between uh, you guys and your friends south of the border well, I mean, you know the NCAA, so I, I won't describe it, but we have over 1,200. I would say that uh, we're more more div designed around your NCAA Division II, not your Division III, which are uh -huh. have a, a strong percentage are private institutions. We, we only have one private institution in, in our 56 members, okay. Trinity Western uh, University in BC. So the rest of them are all public institutions, which, which is very similar to your NCAA yeah. Division II. Uh, probably a line on values and principles like your Division II. We you know, give some scholarship. Um, we have schools, though, that operate programs that would be Division I mentality. So we have a, a Carleton University basketball, yeah. for example, Laval football, and I can go on and on, but McMaster volleyball just beat Ohio State, who were your NCAA champions, and beat them three straight. The, the reality, though, is uh, we will never be a Power Five type model here. It, it, we just won't because we can't, and, and two, that model is as close to professional sport as you could possibly get. Yeah. So I really think the values and, and, the, uh, and what we're trying to build aligns with your Division Two, and also around you know just hiring coaches. So, so a number of our coaches now are, are paid to coach, and that's a change. Before they would be yeah. paid to coach and teach. So a lot of our coaches were in the faculty of phys ed or human kinetics, and they were teaching a course. Now I'd say 80% of our full-time coaches are paid to coach, and that's a big change that's going to improve how we deliver our sports. I heard you before, and I know you have good relationships with Oliver Luck and the people at the NCAA. Do you follow some of the major controversial issues the NCAA has and says, boy, I'm, I'm really glad this doesn't happen to us, or we've got to deal with this pay for play, for yeah. example, one and done. I mean, all of those issues. What's your yeah. what's the thought? Well, uh, we happened to be with Oliver and his team when the basketball was going <laughs> down in yeah. Indianapolis three weeks ago or four weeks ago, and uh, you know, Al Oliver was was certainly uh, good enough to continue to you know meet with us yeah. and and uh, and have his staff meet with us. But yeah, we have similar challenges. We're going through one of them right now with our football team. We have a, a possible ineligible player. I think the difference in Canada where the the eligibility book in the NCAA for example is 200 pages yeah ours is 10 and and ours is really predicated on on uh, on university integrity a lot of it is policed at the university level even to the point that our audit process is a self audit by the university to uh, to determine now I'll save you time never happened in the states yeah so, uh, <laughs> now it, it may not happen but it but it might at division 2 and division 3 Fair. so Fair. so I think it might not happen in your power 5 or your NCAA yeah. division 1 um, you know, but but I think that's just the scale of, of of the programs and the schools. But some would argue also that a 12-page uh, 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 
set of regulations based on integrity is better than 250 pages. Well, and, and I'm going to fight uh, hard to, to keep that philosophy. Yeah. I think there's things we can improve on ours, and, and there are certainly um, areas that we can clean up with ambiguities and, and whatnot, but I think where we're being successful is, is that the basis of everything we do is integrity. And it's also why when we, when we find out there's something uh, wrong, um, it, there's really a, it's the court of public opinion will be worse than the sanctions. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, when you, everybody's supposed to be operating in that, in that collegial, um, you know, manner, culturally, uh, with, with uh, integrity built into it, it's, it's a different model. Just a policy issue, and this is not a legal opinion I'm asking you to give, but when you see the O'Bannon courts and we talk about a commitment of dollars that are generated uh, for a university somewhat on behalf of a player, and the player has some rights to that, how do you feel broadly about that? Yeah, I, I probably don't have a perspective because I could debate either side of that. You know, I mean, it's no different. We have the same challenges in Canada with CHL hockey players, yeah, right. the young players, you know. Many of them are going to their draft year this year, and they'll all be signing, you know, multi-million-dollar yeah. NHL entry-level contracts. Yeah. Yet, you know, and there's a debate whether they're professional athletes or amateur right now. Well, you, same in universities. I mean, I think you have to apply the philosophy of um, dispersion of is every school able to do that, or is there only some? Well, of course, there's only some schools that would fall into that because there are a number of schools and programs that don't have any revenue models. And then, is it by sport? You know, I was surprised at the NCAA when we were there that 80% of, uh, of the billion-dollar annual turnover at the NCAA is generated off, the, off basketball. 80% yeah. of a billion dollars by one sport. That, I, I just couldn't believe that when I saw it. But when you ask them and you see the television numbers and the, and the game and everything else, you, you say, geez, you know, I, I get it now. And so there's about 28 or 30 or whatever other sports don't make any money. You see a kid like R.J. Barrett, and by the way, full disclaimer, disclosure, I'm a Duke parent, so God bless R.J. Barrett. But when you see yep. a kid like that who was the number one player in Canada, clearly, signed with Duke, yep. how does that make you feel? I think that's great. And I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this in football. If you've got an athlete in Canada who can go play in a Power 5 school, yeah. we should fundraise for that athlete to go and have that experience because we can't give that experience anywhere in Canada. And you will not find anywhere in Canada to give R.J. the experiences he's going to have at Duke University. We can send him to our best school and Carleton University and he'll be well coached and he'll have a great experience. He will not have the experience he'll have at Duke University. Are you at the table when the leagues and the NCAA get together and the players, because it's a three-headed stool here, if to mix metaphors about collective bargaining, they talk about player eligibility and one and done and yep. when NFL and NBA uh, kids become eligible. You, you, you have a different set of considerations, but are you at the table? Uh, we are, absolutely, yeah. uh, unequivocally. And, and our closest one truly is really CFL. So we have, okay. we, have, you know, we have a Canadian content rule in CFL, but more importantly, we have a large number, three rounds of, of young people who will be drafted into the CFL, likely will, will make, it, make it to the CFL, you know, and have the same regulations that govern them, when they can play, how long they could be in camp and whatnot. Um, we have a different model for hockey. So the majority, you know, our hockey players who at 15 and 16 decide to play CHL hockey aren't eligible for NCAA because NCAA have determined that they're now professional hockey players. Um, we don't determine that, and, and we welcome and 90% of our hockey players in Canada at our, at our 34 institutions that play uh, men's hockey are ex-CHL hockey players. Uh, we, we just don't see it the same way, but we also have the ability, if you played in the AHL, to come and play university hockey too, unimpeded. You, you could probably argue, based on this, that the broad business principles 
that govern uh, sports south of the border, you have to deal with on a regular basis as it relates to your, your business principles and business day. We, we do. It's very similar. There's no question. Like I said, I think the, it's just south of the border, you, you just, your sport, the NCAA sports, certainly at Division One, certainly in, in, you know, use the Power Five reference, um, we don't have anything close to that in terms of there's nothing. So we don't have that level. But in terms of running sport, I mean, our campus budgets, our programs, I mean, when you add facilities, some of our athletic directors are overseeing facilities. They're overseeing the, uh, the athletic department, the, the campus recreation. U of T has 90,000 students. Hmm. So, you know, I, I would challenge that that's as big as any institution in the U.S. with as many complexities. The only difference is we don't put 40, 50, 60,000 people into their football stadium every week. It is the only difference. So project ahead, Graham Brown. Where are you and where is this organization five years from now? Well, I think my focus up until now is just, just making it more professional, making that mindset that it's, it, it needs to be more professional. And so far, that's been embraced collectively across the country. The next part, then, is, is making it more commercially viable within, within you know, reason. But there's no commercial related to this sport or to this organization. And I think there's a real desire to bring com corporate Canada in, work with them, grow the sport. To, to reinvest that into television and into marketing and promotion. And, and I think um, if you can piece it all together, and I've had the opportunity to, to spend two years trying to do it, when we get traction, and we're getting traction right now, there's some news coming out in the next couple of weeks, um, I think then you're going to start to see university athletics. We have great athletes. And, and if you want to really go back to what drives what we do, we have fantastic athletes in this country, bright, young, committed. You know, I, if you heard me speak today, I call them high-performance athletes because they are. They're not amateur athletes. They're, they're, they're really, truly high-performance athletes. We had 156 Olympians that are in our, our network of universities at the last Olympics. You need to be a little more passionate about what you do. La ladies and gentlemen, so a 12-page document for eligibility based on integrity, there's a novel concept. Graham Brown, uh, I really hope you succeed, <laughs> and thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.